0: I was driving up with Ken Graves from the airport yesterday, and um, I, I wanted to be like you guys. I just wanted to come and enjoy the the time together, so I tried to pawn off my teaching assignment on Ken, and I was all set. He's like, I'll take it. And, uh, and then Brett wouldn't let me out of it, so I tried, fellas. I wish God would make two Ken Graves and no Rob McCoy. He's a good preacher um so we're talking about warrior and uh i kind of find it funny that they assign that to me because i don't see myself as that but i'll i'll share this with you um when we look at the lord in scripture um there's different ways that we have a relationship with him based on scripture and and you look at psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd so we have a relationship where we're the sheep and he's the shepherd right and then talks about a, a a vine and and we're the branches so he's he's the vine dresser and and uh and we have that relationship with him in that capacity. And then he also talks to us in the sense of husbandry, where he, he's caring for his his, his people. Um, but the one area that that we don't see often in Scripture that I think needs to be focused is that the Lord looks at us as warriors. And I want to share a few verses with you um, in relation to that. Um, so let me just pull it up real quick. And these are a couple I just did. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let me pray. Lord, unless you build this temple, we labor in vain. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd collect the thoughts. I thank you for all the men who have put in the time and effort to study, to show themselves approved unto you. Workmen who need not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. And Lord, your, your word is loved here because, Jesus, you're loved and you are the word. And so inspire us, cause us to come alive to your living word. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Timothy chapter two, verses three and four, "You therefore must endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier." <clears throat> Exodus 15, verse three: "The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name." Hebrews chapter two, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and by whom all things are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the word captain is a military term. Psalm 144, one of Psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now this is. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's the same one who picked up a sling and took down a giant and then cut his head off with his own sword, and that's Goliath. Jeremiah 51, uh, verses 20 and 21. You are my battle axe and my weapons of war, for with you I will break the nation in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. With you I will break in pieces the horse and its rider. With you I will break in pieces the chariot and its rider. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And then Ephesians six thirteen, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We'll cover that in a moment. And then I want to share with you one other passage, and I'll refer to all these as we go through the message. Second Samuel twenty-three eleven and two, or excuse me, eleven and twelve. Uh, this is David's mighty men. This is the third in the line. This is a hero of mine. This is uh, the man that God used to give me a vision. It says, "After him was Shema, the son of Agai the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils, a lentil field." Lentils were the worthless crop in Israel. It's poor man's food. It was basically a worthless field. And um, so the people fled from the Philistines, but Shema stationed himself in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. And then one final passage. Judges 14, for another hero of mine, Samson. Uh, I, he's the most immoral man in Scripture. You can't teach it in Sunday school because there's nothing moral about his life. Yet God used him to bring 20 years of peace into Israel. Really, study Judges 13 and 14, you'll see there's nothing moral about Samson's life, nothing. And if you have a problem with Trump as president, let me just give you Judges 14, 4 to settle your heart. When his parents were wondering why he was marrying a Philistine woman, while he, why he was so disobedient, here's a man that spent an entire night in a prostitute's bed, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him to break the, the, the bonds, not once but twice. Spirit of the Lord came upon him to pay off a gambling debt that he'd incurred with the Philistines. Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he smote a 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, and, and this is a man that his whole life was a mess. He killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his life because after they had shaved his head and he was tied between two pillars, he pulled him down and crushed the temple and crushed about 3,000 Philistines in that final effort as he took his own life. But here was the answer to it. But his father, Samson's father and mother, did not know that it was the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. You guys know Baronelle Stutzman? She's a woman up in Washington, D.C., who's a florist. And uh, she'd had a relationship with uh, two gay men, um, a business relationship with these two gay men, and she had ministered to them for over 20 years. And they wanted to get married, and they came to her as friends and asked if she'd or if she'd provide flowers for their wedding. And she said, I can't. It's a, against what I believe in. Um, and she referred them to a number of other floors who'd do it. They didn't like it, and they'd set her up, and they sued her. And in the state of Washington, she ended up just getting worked over in the ACLU, millions of dollars. And they took, a, they took her business, and they went after her life savings, and they bankrupted her. And if if it goes to the Supreme Court, we're going to be in a better place. But as it stands now, uh, just because she stood upon scriptural principles, they wiped out her business. And these are sheep, and they're attacked by wolves. And the fascinating thing is, the churches in Washington have done nothing to stand by her side. She's lost everything. I can go down a list of countless examples, like Baronel Stutzman, countless examples. We have seven, seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, 27 amendments, and it begins with we the people in order to form a more perfect union, so the power is put in our hands. It's the very first time we have a representative form of government on the face of the earth. And after they point out that this representative form of government that came out of the Puritan mindset, because prior to the 1600s when you had the Reformation, the primary government in the world was a monarchy, Right? and And it was the divine right of kings; they owned everything, and they told you what to do and If you look at scripture, you think, well, that is the greatest form of government because David was a king, Saul was a king, Solomon was a king, Joseph, you know you can go down the whole list, everybody was kings but as, but in exodus eighteen twenty one God assigned what the government was supposed to be, and it was that you were to take godly men who feared the Lord, who weren 't covetous and and you were to assign them over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, and that 's where you get a local uh, local government, county government, state government, and federal government. And that's where our founders started to realize that. And they came up with what was called the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Reformation. And the reason why it was such an exciting Bible is because you had the scriptures, but next to the scriptures in the margins were the marginal commentaries of all the Reformation, Re- reformational thinkers that put together a representative form of government as they started to look at these different aspects. And so when the Puritans came over in 1620, they brought within the Geneva Bible. And you can see the picture in the... Rotunda of the of the Capitol building, um, where they're holding open this Geneva Bible, and they're all gathering. And they gave us what was called the Mayflower Compact, Mayflower Compact, which was the first uh, civil government uh, formation. And they said it was for the furtherance of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so they sought this, and they they read the scriptures. Every single one of these Puritans would go through the scriptures uh, in a given year. They'd read three to four hours a day. Uh, most of our founders went through the Geneva Bible, they all studied the scriptures, they were biblically literate. And so they established this, and as, as they began to look at it, this Geneva Bible, uh, the first thing they did is they looked at the book of Acts where they saw communism, where it said they sold their possessions, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they gave to those who had need. And so the early Puritans started what was a, a, an early form of socialism and started to realize that socialism doesn't work. Uh, the illustration I use often is if you're getting an A in a class and you're getting an F, uh, socialism is, you know, I really feel bad you're getting an F, so I'm going to take two of your grades, give you a C, and bring you up two grades, and you'll both have Cs. Isn't that great? Well, for you, the lazy slug is like, yeah, that's awesome. And the guy over here has worked his tail off to get an A. He's like, no, that's not fair. Why should I work any harder? And so what happens in socialism is it's a, a breeding ground for people not to do anything. And and so the Puritans started to realize it wasn't working, and they saw passages in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and also in Timothy if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And they started to realize that work was a form of worship. And they started to establish these principles of, of private property. And then the Ten Commandments are a relationship. First five are a relationship with the Lord. Second are a relationship with each other. And it's for the protection of private property as you go through Leviticus. And they start to establish a government based on these principles. And as you, you look at other portions of Scripture where why do we have three branches of government? They brought that out of Isaiah 33, 22, Um, where we see the the Lord as judge and lawgiver, and it goes through all these different aspects, and they they set up the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and they started to put together this form of government that has never been equaled on the face of the earth. And now we're in a stage where we're losing, after we had the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, 27 amendments, and we gave on loan this power to representatives based on uh, Exodus 18.21, we realize that the heart is deceitful above all else, so we have to protect ourselves from our representatives who are going to want to centralize power to make everyone else their slave. And that's the nature of man. We want others to work so we don't have to, right? And so to, to put in protections, they gave these amendments. And the very first amendment they gave, and if you look at the first 10 years of the congressional record of over 90 different authors, not a single one of them ever talked about a separation of church and state, not one. Not one. They understood that if if a people were to be free, they had what was called the golden triangle, that you have virtue, faith, and freedom, that the three have to go together. If you don't have virtue, which is the pursuit of good, then you won't have freedom, and freedom can only come, and virtue can only come by faith. And they understood the necessity to have God as that understanding that we're accountable to a supreme lawgiver. So they set this up so that we we would have this moral connection to the, the, the supreme lawgiver and be accountable to him, and then we would care for our brethren according to the scriptures, and that would be our moral code. And so they established that. And a nation that represents less than 3% of the world's population has had the greatest accumulation of wealth of any nation on the face of the earth in the history of the earth. And now we're at a precip, where the Baronel Stutzmans of the world are losing this religious freedom, and we're about to lose this, this heritage that we've had of... of the infusion of God's word in the life of a nation, blesses a nation whose God is the Lord. Sin is a reproach to any people. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And the, and the problem is, and, and what happened on the National Day of Prayer, which we experienced this last Thursday, is an executive order by the president to do away with, to the best of his ability, and they're going to pursue it more, but to do away with the, the Johnson Amendment, which was established in 1954. Prior to 1954, every church in America had an election day sermon, and you came to the church to to get, basically, uh, your voter guide. And the pastors would endorse candidates from the pulpit, but in 1954, when the Johnson Amendment came, they threatened the tax-exempt status of the churches. And now now they're they're summoning pastors to give their sermons to critique them, and in Houston, uh, the, the lesbian mayor... Uh, would not permit any of the pastors to preach in opposition to homosexuality and and subpoenaed that they would give their sermons now that lesbian mayor was elected by less than eight percent of the vote and in Houston, Texas, uh, five of the ten largest churches in America are in Houston. They represent over four billion dollars in assets of real estate, and in those mega churches resides more than forty percent of the entire population of Houston, but none of them vote. Mm-hmm. That lesbian mayor was elected by 8% of the vote, and she was finally taken out of office, not by conservative Christians, but taken out by liberal, democratic, black pastors who stood in opposition to homosexuality. But the white church in America is absolutely silent. Most of our pastors don't participate in politics because they feel it's all about the gospel. And I'm, I, listen, I, I preached the gospel. I threw the net out last Sunday. My sister got saved. 35 years of praying, my lesbian sister comes to Christ. <laughs> I believe the gospel is the number one thing. I don't question the pastors in that capacity. But my struggle is, if the preaching of the gospel is the number one thing, wouldn't the second most important thing be protecting the government that protects the preaching of that gospel? More than 80 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from the United States of America because our laws are in place. But as I've said many times with the men, when we look at 2 Timothy, where it says, to pray for kings and those in authority that will have quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence, most pastors don't know who their city council members are, and they don't know who their school board members are. How do you, how do you pray for someone whose name you don't know, let alone the issues that would bring peace and, and quiet and lives and godliness? How, how, I'm sorry, how do you do that? And so when the Lord refers to us as sheep, he's also calling us warriors. The same man who said, the Lord is my shepherd, the same one who took a sling into his hand and a sword to cut off the head of Goliath. He's the same one who stood when when for 40 days not a single soldier in Israel would do anything because they were paralyzed by Goliath. And the thing that so impresses me, and I don't care how you feel or what you are politically, and this isn't a partisan issue, I'm talking about a man. Donald Trump is probably one of the most moral presidents, immoral presidents we've ever had. Three times married, twice divorced, and by his own admission he slept with every woman in New York. He's caustic and bombastic. But guess what? God is seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, and he's willing to step forward. And if God can use Samson, he'll use Trump. And this man, I've never seen in my 52 years on this earth a man make more of a defense for life than Donald Trump when he stood in opposition to, to the third third trimester abortion. And it made uh, candidate Clinton look absolutely silly trying to defend, saying that that it's for the life of the mother. There's not a doctor in America who would say A third trimester abortion can protect the life of a mother. It's a partial birth abortion. The baby is born just to the head. They sever the back of the skull, suck the brains out, and remove the dead fetus, the dead baby. By the way, fetus in Latin means baby. Really? Yes. And so this is the the barbarism that we tolerate in our culture. And, And nobody stands in front of the Planned Parenthoods. Nobody is holding the sling. Nobody is a warrior. Nobody is defending life and this is easy preaching the gospel is easy it's easy but engaging it as a warrior putting a sling in your hand now you're a sheep and you're you're feeding in in the green pastures upon the word of god praise the lord And I'm grateful for Calvary Chapel because they gave me a systematic study of of the scriptures. I have a systematic theology. Chuck Smith is the one that brought us back to the word of God. Now it's time to take all that we've learned and pick up the sling. He's fashioned our hands for war. And as I was watching, having been born in this state, my father was born in this state, this was a state of the future. We had the best schools. We had the finest infrastructure. We had a water delivery system. We, we irrigated the, the San Joaquin Valley that produced more cotton than the entire South combined. It was a nation of low taxes and, and a great place to come and do business. It was the Golden State. Yes. Calvary Chapels came on the scene in 1967. Chuck was preaching the gospel verse by verse, chapter by chapter, <clears throat> book by book. The church was dead, and God used this Jesus movement to revive the church. Chuck, by, by his own admission, was apolitical. He never got <clears throat> into politics. It was all about the gospel because most of the people in his congregation had been disillusioned with politics as a result of Kennedy being shot, both John and Robert, and also Martin Luther King Jr. being shot. And Martin Luther King Jr., as he's sitting in a a prison cell in Birmingham, Alabama, because he stood in opposition to segregation, it was the churches, the white churches in America that said, you're on the wrong side of history because you're in prison. And his response was, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with us. And it's easy to be behind a wooden box and think that you're bold. But step into the culture and watch how tough it gets. I've been preaching for 25 years now. 25 years I've been preaching. And it wasn't until I ran for office that I realized how hard this is. I've never experienced persecution behind the pulpit. It's only when I stepped into politics that I experienced it. And guess where I experienced most of the persecution? From the church. Uh, man, I, I wouldn't do that. You're mixing church and state. I'm sorry, when, when was there a separation of church and state based on the First Amendment, especially with the first you know, 10 years of the congressional record with 90 different authors? And you look at, at um, Two Treatises of Government by John Locke, and you, and you look at the founding fathers and what their number one source that they... Would quote at over 15,000 quotations. What was the number one source that they'd quote? Over 38% of the time, it was the scriptures. They, they, they comment on Two Treatises of Law, which is a book that's less than 400 pages that quotes scripture over, I think, 500 times. John Locke was a believer. And, and our founders were so committed that when they had the Geneva Bible, it was finally, you have this King James Bible and many people, I'm King James only, King James only. I'll go New King James, but that's it. Not a Masoretic text I stay away from. Okay, I get that, great, praise the Lord. But guess where that came from? It was King James who wanted to go against the Geneva Bible because he didn't want all these people understanding the commentaries of civil government So he gives the exact same scripture without the commentaries and refuses the commentaries and makes an edict that no Bible in English territory can be printed without the king's authorization to do away with the Geneva Bible. And so when this upstart of of Puritans that had this establishment on the eastern seaboard of America began this revolution that was all grounded in the word, the very first thing they did in 1641 was they put what was called the, the Old Satan Deluder Act. It was the very first public school edict. And they knew that Satan would water down all the children who didn't have biblical literacy. And so they created the New England Primer to educate all of the children in the scriptures. And the book was about that that tall, that wide, and about that thick. And it was all scripture. And everyone was educated on that. And at the back of the book, there's 178 questions that not a single one of you could answer one of them. Yet every single grammar school child had to have answered every single one of those questions. That's how biblically literate our culture was and created this revolution that changed the face of the earth and has given us this religious freedom. And they were so committed to that that when they finally won the war, um, General Cornwallis had surrendered. And now we had the Continental Congress, and this was 1783. The nation wouldn't be established with our U.S. Constitution until 1787. They wanted to make... George Washington King, he voluntarily stepped down. The Continental Congress got together, and the second act of the Continental Congress was to print a Bible. Very first English Bible printed without the king's authorization, and they called it the Bible of the Revolution. It was printed by the Continental Congress. Talk about separation of church and state. 20,000 copies were printed, and it was for the education of our children and our families. They, print, they printed this Bible. There's only really only 26 copies remaining. It's one of the rarest books on the face of the earth, but this was a commitment that our founders had because they were warriors. They took on the greatest nation on the face of the earth. The greatest nation that just defeated the second greatest nation on the face of the earth, France. The Continental Congress didn't even have a navy to speak of. They didn't have much of an army to speak of. And these were warriors. And they were committed to that. And I'll tell you what, if you just want to get fat on the gospel and you just want to study the scriptures, that's great. But if you want to put feet to your faith and pick up the sling, there's a culture out there that desperately needs infusion. Bad government happens with bad ideas, and good government happens with good people. In the absence of Christians in the political world because we have divested ourselves from even having a knowledge of what takes place and how good government operates and people say you can't legislate morality is one of the most stupid statements i've ever heard in my entire life because every law is based on morals somebody's and and some of you are libertarians and you're like just keep the government out of my affairs and and you've seen this 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 divestment and you've seen it mani- uh, manifest itself in different political ideal- ideology but the ancients when they looked at the law when the ancients looked at the law they said these are the wise restraints that make men free how can the law how can restraints make somebody free how can restraints make somebody free well, this is what's printed over the, the, the buildings at Harvard Law School, the wise restraints that make men free. How can restraints make somebody free? They were brilliant in their understanding. They knew that freedom wasn't the absence of restraints, as libertarians would say or as liberals would say. They knew that, 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 that freedom wasn't the absence of restraint. They realized that <clears throat> restraints from evil gives you the ability to pursue excellence You see, they saw freedom as the ability to pursue excellence. Let me repeat that. They saw freedom as the ability to pursue excellence. The Apostle Paul, while he was in prison, said, Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. You're always able to pursue excellence. So, for example, Tom Brady, quarterback, epic Super Bowl, big comeback, amazing quarterback, amen? Even if you don't like the... Tom Brady, Tom Brady has the freedom to pursue football at a higher level of excellence because he's applied restraints. When Rob McCoy is sitting in front of the television set with a big bag of potato chips, Tom Brady's out on the football field practicing. You see, that's the reason why we don't allow alcohol to be served 100 yards from a school because we know that kids would be drawn to the least common denominator we don't have to practice to sin. We, we keep that from them so they have the freedom to pursue excellence. That's the purpose. But if we're not engaged, and we don't understand the law, and we don't understand government, we make no inroads into that culture. Calvary Chapel is a perfect example. 1967 when Chuck started, California had the fifth largest GDP on the face of the earth. Divorce, divorce was the exception. I couldn't even name maybe two kids in my class that, whose parents had gone through a divorce and and, and, and we had the most amazing secondary education. Our school systems were resplendent. Was, Reagan was governor. And Chuck is apolitical, and it's not until the end of his life that he started to realize he needed to get engaged in this. But he stayed away from politics. The only president he ever endorsed was Jimmy Carter because Jimmy said he was born again. And Chuck laughed at that. And I'm not disparaging Chuck because I wouldn't be here today without that man and all the Calvary Chapel pastors and the love for the word that they instilled in me. Please understand that. But because of our apolitical position, here we are having preached the gospel. It's 2017, and we've experienced 10,000% growth since 1967, four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary chapels. We have the Harvest Crusades of Greg Laurie and Somebody Loves You Crusades with Raul Rees. And the lion's share of those 1600 churches are in California because they're all a bunch of uh, ex-surfers and drug addicts. And they're all in California. And so what kind of impact have we made with this conversion growth of 10,000%? What kind of impact have we made in the state of California? Well, we're no longer the fifth largest GDP on the face of the earth, we're now the ninth. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax, we lead the nation in taxes. Our energy costs are 48% higher than Colorado, which is the next highest in the country. And we just added a 12 cent gas tax. More people have left the state than came here during the Dust Bowl. Not only do we have the highest taxes in the entire country, but we also have the highest debt of any state in the union. You take the next four largest states, combine it, it doesn't equal the debt of California. We haven't built a single water storage facility since the 70s, and then when the spillway at the Orville Dam broke and the water was flowing over, every day enough water went over that spillway to cover the needs of the entire city of Sacramento for two years. We're still waiting for the snow to melt and it's flowing right out to the Pacific Ocean. And had we captured it, even if you're an environmentalist, we would have a salmon run for the next 20 years based on the rains that we received, but there's no infrastructure. We tax the people into oblivion until our millennials can't live here any longer, and they have to leave the state. Our businesses leave the state. We have no infrastructure. We ride on roads that are dilapidated and broken. We're a mess. The entire legislature is dominated by one party. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, you're irrelevant. That's an imbalance. And this is the state that is now telling us that we can't preach the gospel. So, you need to pick up your sling. And before you start thinking I'm preaching dominionism, onward Christian soldiers. That's not what I'm doing. And if you think I'm looking for a theocracy, you don't understand. Because we don't don't war against flesh and blood, but spiritual principalities. And that only is conquered by two things number one, you advance on your knees. Is what you're doing really worth doing if you can do it apart from prayer? And if you don't know who it is you're praying for, I really doubt you're even praying. It's a great verse, but do we apply that we pray for kings and those in the authority? The reason why I've had the success I've had is because of our Sunday night prayer service and the people that endeavor and intercede on my behalf to pray for me. And to watch the changes in the inroads, this is a man who's never run for political office. I ran for a state assembly. It was the most intense thing I've ever experienced. I ended up winning the city council and being reelected to the city council. We've run four races and won three of the four. Now it's five of the, four of the five. We didn't know what we were doing. But in less than two years, we've already turned our entire city from liberal to conservative, our school board from liberal to conservative. We're one seat away from turning our supervisory board from liberal to conservative. People have stepped forward that have never engaged in politics and are starting to realize. And the Bible says if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the deepest ocean. And we're contending. We're contending for what these children are going to study. And yet there's no Christian showing up to do that. And the ones that do, the church abandons them. But not in our county. Excuse me, let me say that. Not in Conejo Valley. We had the largest National Day of Prayer turnout. Close to 1,000 people come out. The pastors are unified now. We're committed. We have all of our city leaders come out. We pray for them by name. We're having an enormous impact in their lives. So much so that one of the most liberal gatherings, the National Day of Prayer, the YMCA prayer breakfast. It's not even called YMCA anymore. It's called Y because they took Men's Christian Association out. They've abandoned their Christian roots It's an ecumenical gathering, and here we were. It was the largest gathering in 18 years. It's packed, and they asked me to be the keynote, not because I'm a pastor. They got plenty of pastors. They asked me to be the keynote because I'm a pastor and a politician, which blows their mind. And that opened the door for me to go and preach. And and the year before, they had Mariology, and, and even they begin by saying, you know, let's have a moment to pray to God as you see him, him or her. They had a Muslim speak, and they had a Jew speak, and they had a Mormon speak, and they went down the whole gamut. And then it was my turn to come and speak, invoking the name of Christ and speaking to them. And you could see a move of God's spirit when his word was preached. And I could feel it. It was an out-of-body experience watching the entire room move by the simple preaching of the word of God. They're hungry. But how will they know unless someone tells them? And if you're not going into that area to contend, and if you think it's a war where they're the enemy, you're wrong. People are not the enemy. They're the objects of God's love, and they're not enemies or opportunities. And if you want to invoke your will upon their life, you don't get it. You love them into the kingdom. My sister came to Christ because she was loved into the kingdom. But you still have to be in the midst of it to contend with ideas in such a way that you speak the truth and love. And I'm limited on time, so I'll just share this one story with you in relation to being a warrior. I uh I I was asked to actually Ken Graves and I got to go to uh to Israel. Ken are you here? were you on that trip with the RNC Republican National Committee? Yeah. So we 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 went with the RNC members, Republican National Committee. So every every state in the union has a state party chairwoman, a state party chairman and then another person. So so there's uh, 158 RNC members that set the platform for the party whether they're going to be pro-life, they're going to be pro-marriage or you know and, and and this is a an interesting contingent. And they were given a free trip to Israel by an anonymous donor with the one exception that it would be a spiritual journey that at each of the sites a pastor would preach and they're like, "Well, okay, free trip to Israel, but we got to listen to a pastor preach." It's kind of like a timeshare deal. <laughs> And it was an eclectic crowd. We had, we had Mormons, agnostics, atheists, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, both conservative, reformed, and orthodox. Uh, I think there were two homosexuals on the trip. I mean, it was it was the bar scene out of Star Wars. It was an eclectic gathering. <laughs> and the first place that we meet was um, at, at the Mount of Beatitudes. We all gather in, and the the organizer of the trip says, okay, folks, gather in. It was kind of, I think it was raining, and we all gathered underneath the, the awning. I can't remember. And so they're pressed in, and they're all looking at their phones like, okay, whatever. Let's gather, everybody. Please pay attention. And we have Pastor Rob who's going to share. And he almost could feel the tension. like, oh, man, here we go, timeshare. And they're putting their thing in their pocket to listen. They're like, okay, what do you got? And I had been praying about this because God had opened a door, so i have been praying about it. And I, I, just, I started with a Stephen Mansfield book. And I said, look, we have an eclectic gathering. We have Jews. Mormons, Catholics, Protestants, agnostics, atheists. I didn't go through the homosexual side, and I just said, we don't have anything in common with one thing, and we're all Republicans. So I want to begin with the final words, the last words of the very first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, April 14th, 1865. He would die on Good Friday. April 14th, 1865, he's in Ford's Theater, they're watching my American cousin. He leans into his wife, and this is proven by the curated Lincoln Library and by Mary Lincoln herself leans into his wife, and he says, when this is all over, and John Wilkes Booth is approaching the back of his head with a Derringer, he leans into his wife, holds her hand, and he says, when this is all over, meaning the war, I so, want, I so long to walk with you in the footsteps of our Savior in Jerusalem. And you could hear a pin drop. And I said, you're standing where the president never had the privilege to be. This backwoods Kentucky boy, who'd never had a formal education, had been drinking from the streams of liberty his whole life, and longed to come to its source. And you're here. And for the next ten days, I'd encourage you to drink deeply. And it was profound. How many people we baptized in the Jordan? A grip of them, right? A bunch. And they they still contact us and tell us that God has moved in their life. And one in particular was the last night we were going to be at the Garden Tomb. And it was a big day. We're going to do communion. And and I was laboring over the message. I couldn't sleep. So I told my wife, I'm going to go up to the top of the hotel in the old city. When I get up there, there's a man up there, and he's smoking a cigar, and his name is Sean Spicer. He was the spokesperson for the RNC. He's now the president's press secretary. And I say, he goes, hey, Rob. And I go, hey, Sean. We sit down. He goes, you want a cigar? And I'm like, okay. For those of you who struggle with that, I'm sorry. (laughs) And as we're sitting there talking, he tells me he's adopted two kids. I told him we adopted one from Russia when she was 12. We had the neatest conversation. He said, this has really spurred in me. I haven't been to church, and I can't remember how long. I just wanted to see Israel. I heard it was a place to be. I didn't expect it to be this profound. It's really touched me. I'm up here. My head's swirling, and we start talking about it. And I said, you know, God loves adoption because we are adopted into his kingdom. I shared the gospel with him. We have a really profound talk where our hearts are knitted, and I know this guy. God's got him. And he sends back a letter saying, I started going back to church. And then all of a sudden, the election happens, which was crazy. He gets appointed as the press secretary. I send him a text, and I said, hey, listen, in the biggest trials of the campaign and through political office, there's a book I have, 31 Days of Wisdom and Praise. It's a psalm and the Proverbs and 31 readings. And I I don't know what's anointed about this book, but every time I open it up, it speaks to the issues I'm dealing with. Can I send you a copy? You're going to need it. he said, Please. And so I sent it in the mail. He gave me a physical address. I mailed it to his house. And I sent him two. And I said, in case you can think of anyone else who needs one. (laughs) He says, thanks for the devotional. I've been reading it every day. And then he says, hey, listen, if you're ever in Washington, why don't you come by? I said, I'll be there next week for a lobbying trip with RDP 21. He says, come by. I go, no, you're busy. He goes, no, come by. So at the end of the trip on Wednesday I he said come by the White House. He put my name on the list. They did the security check. I get there and uh and I go through, you know, the 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 background check, all that stuff. They let me through the gate. They give me the badge. They say go down to that gate and I go down to that gate. I go through the screening and the security devices and they said you're you're in. I walk into the into the White House grounds and I have no idea where I'm supposed to go. Nobody's told me anything. And I don't want to get shot, but I I just figure I'm going to own it, you know, and I just start walking. And to the left of the executive office, to the right is the White House, and and I see this door, and I go down the steps into the door, and there's a Secret Service agent there, and I go, hey, I'm supposed to meet with Sean Spicer. He goes, man, this isn't where we check in. I don't know anything about it. I can't help you. I'm like, okay, thanks. He goes, you might try upstairs. I'm like, upstairs? Don't know what you're talking about, but thank you. And I pretend like I do because I'm owning it. And I walk up the stairs, and Ivanka Trump comes down, and I'm like, and she's really beautiful. I go, hey. And she goes, hey. And that's about it. And, uh, <laughs> and I go down the way, and I go up the steps, and, and, and there it is, the resplendent White House lawn, and there's all the tents of the media on the White House lawn. I go to the west wing door, and there's a Marine to t- guard there. He opens up the door. I said, am I supposed to go in? Is this where? And he, I said, do I stand out here, do I? I'm like, all right, I get it. So I walk in, and there's a receptionist, and she says, oh, yes, Mr. Spicer said you'll be here. Have a seat, and he'll be here shortly. He's running a little late. And I say, oh, thank you. And then all of a sudden, um, oh, what's her name? The firecracker lady. She's, uh, she ran his campaign, the campaign manager. Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne Conway comes through, and, and uh, she looks at me, and I look at her, and she goes, do I know you? And I go, no, but I'm a big fan of yours. I give her a high five. And she goes, no, I know you. I go, no, I'd know if I knew you. I mean, I know you, but I don't know you. And it was kind of weird. And, um, and, and I, she says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a city councilman, but I'm also a pastor. I've done stuff with David Lane. David Lane, that's where I know you. I go, no, you've never been to any events I've done. She goes, you look familiar to me. And, and she says, but I have to go. It's nice meeting you, you too. And off she goes. And... um, and so all of a sudden, Sean comes in, and he says, uh, hey, i got to do an interview out on the lawn. Uh, come with me, and then I'll give you a tour. I'm like, okay. So we go out to the lawn where all the media tents are, and he goes, hey, I understand you just met Kelly Conway. She says she knows you. I go, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so we get to the media thing, and he's putting the earpiece in. They're going to do a live feed with some, um, you know, studio elsewhere. And uh, the, the, the producer's there. His name's Ben. And he says to Sean, as he's putting his earpiece, he says, um, you're going to be live in two minutes, but David's on the line if you want to talk to him. And I go, Ben, are you with CBN? Is that David Brody? And he goes, yeah. And I go, hey, Sean, tell David Brody I said hi, and I'll see him at church in a week or two. Um, Actually, I'll see him tomorrow in in Richmond, Virginia at the ARP event. Sean looks at me like, hey, I'm with Pastor Rob McCoy. And he's, oh, hey, Rob. And Sean's like, who don't you know, man? Well, you know. (laughs) So we finish that and we go in and we go into his offices. As soon as we walk into his offices, Sarah Huckabee, Governor Huckabee, who's a friend of mine, Sarah Huckabee goes, Pastor Rob. And John goes, serious? You know, and I give her a hug and, and he's real excited. He says, Rob, I want to show you something. This was a highlight of his tour. Now he's going to show me the, the Oval Office, the Cabinet Room, all that stuff. But he takes me to his office and he points to his devotional and it's dog-eared. He says, Rob, I read it every day. He said, thanks for sending me this. And then... We go to the Oval Office, we go to the Cabinet Room, we take a picture of the Rose Garden with the picture and the whole bit, and he said, you miss the president, he's up in the private chambers, you missed him by about six minutes. I said, I didn't miss him, you did, I was on time. <laughs> and I go, besides, I really wanted to meet Mike Pence, but he goes, I haven't seen him all day. I, he goes, but I got to get rolling. I said, okay. So he takes me down for a couple other things to see, and then we're heading down to the basement, and we're coming up, and all of a sudden, the entire vice presidential entourage comes by. He goes, hey, looks like God answered your prayers. He goes, he always does. He goes, well, let's meet out by the limousines. We'll get a chance to meet him. I said, okay, so we walk out there where initially initially had walked in to meet the Secret Service guy. We walk out there and Mike Pence comes out and he's with his younger brother. And Sean goes, hey, Mike, I want you to meet Pastor Rob McCoy. He goes, Pastor Rob, how are you? I said, I'm fine, Mike, uh, Mr. Vice President. And uh, he says, Sean, how do you know the good pastor? He said, well, we did a trip to Israel uh, with David Lane. David Lane, you tell David, thank you for all he's done because we are fighting for religious liberty and I just want you to know what David Lane has been doing. He's going on and on about David. I'm going, hey, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, I go uh, Mr. Vice President, I know if David were here, I know what he'd want to do. And he goes, what's that? And I go, he'd want to give you a hug. He goes, all right, bring it in. He's not a hugging guy, but I said, I want to hug you until it's uncomfortable. He goes, you're there. <laughs> <laughs> And I take a picture with him with the local newspaper, having some fun with it. And uh, I said, Mr. Vice President, can I pray for you? He said, sure. And I said, I'll keep it brief. He said, no, 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 pray for us. He's, and he, he calls his younger brother over. He goes, you're going to want this. Pastor's going to pray for us. So I pray for the three of them real brief, and that's the end of it. And I say goodbye. I, I say goodbye to Sean. I walk out the gate, get in a taxi, and drive back to my hotel, my pumpkin, back to my life. And, and I walk across the street because my phone's dying to the mall to buy a charger. As I'm leaving, the Lord puts on my heart, stop at this store. It's like a shave store. And I I actually walk out the doors of the mall and I'm like, I don't need anything from the shave store. The Lord's like, go back. So I go back to the shave store and I walk in and there's a younger black gal there and I said, hey, how you doing? She goes, I've had better days. I'm like, that's odd. And I'm looking at the shelf and I'm like, I'll get some oil because it's small and I can travel with it. And I bring it over the counter, and I said, uh, that's a strange way to greet somebody. What's going on with you, dear? She said, well, I just, I just got a call. I had an MRI, and I've got a tumor in the back of my brain, and it's not cancerous, but I'm just scared. I said, yeah. And she's, like, shaking. I said, what's your name? She said, Tracy. I said, Tracy, you know what? I'm a city councilman. I came out here for a lobbyist trip. I've, I've met with admirals and and congressional members and senators and I've been through the Pentagon and all over Washington, and a matter of fact, here's some pictures. I just got back from the White House. I mean, this is a bucket list item. This is the, the secretary this is the press secretary. Here's the Vice President, and me. And I said, "And this was a great trip, but quite honestly, I didn't know why I was out here until right now. She goes, "Well, why are you here?" I said, "Well, because I'm a councilman, but my, my calling, my passion in life is a pastor. And God brought me all the way from California not to meet with any of these people, but to tell you that your heavenly father loves you and it's gonna be all right. And I'm gonna pray for you if it's okay. She starts sobbing. She grabs me and she won't let go. And I'm praying with her. And I finish praying, and she still won't let go. Unlike Vice President Pence, she wasn't uncomfortable. <laughs> She starts throwing all these samples in the bag and she's typing in a discount. I go, stop it. And I said, I'm gonna pray for you. I just want you to know this is the highlight of my trip. Yeah, we're warriors and we have slings. But it's a world of ideas and we move forward in love. God opens up doors that'll blow your mind if you're willing to stand. It's a different kind of warrior. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Step into the throes of it. The reason why I got to be with Mike Pence and the rest is because I stepped into the political arena. And you know what? He's grateful I did because he needed me. And each and every one of you, this is too comfortable. There's a world out there you need to step into. You've been feeding in green pastures. Pick up the sling and get to business. Watch what God's going to do, and I'm finished. God bless you guys.